Welcome everyone to the Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talks. I'm Finarni Jorgensen. I'm Dolly Jorgensen. And we are visited today by Joseph Pugliese, who will talk about his new book, Biopolitics of the Modern Human, Forensic Ecologies of Violence, which came out with Duke University Press in, in 2020. So we'll just jump straight into it uh, and give the word to you, Joseph. Well, first of all, thank you, Dolly and um, Finan Jorgensen for your really warm invitation to contribute to your Greenhouse uh, book series. And my thanks to the University of Stavanger too for uh, hosting us. And um, I'm, I'm really honored to be part of this um, e ecologically concerned uh, book talk series. Um, before I start, I, I do want to acknowledge that I'm on um, both Darug and Gadigal land here. Uh, and as you know from my book, um, I flag that uh, the book wouldn't have been written uh, effectively without um, uh, my presence on, on this land. Um, and uh, I'm deeply indebted to both the Gadigal people and um, the Darug uh, people for, for the knowledges, uh, their custodianship, and really their love of country. Uh, and, I, and I mean that um, not in a rhetorical way. So this isn't a rhetorical um, acknowledgement of country as we call it in Australia. It's, it's one that's really invested in trying to unlearn my own Euro-anthropocentrism, as I called it in the book, uh, by listening to, by attending to these millennial knowledges um, that Indigenous people um, have had and that are absolutely crucial, I think, for our survival, uh, um, not as a species only, but as, a, as, as, as more than human communities within this world. So what I would like to do in a sense is to um, address why I, why I wrote this book. And, and, and there, is, there is a definitive <laughs> answer to that uh, question. Uh, my penultimate book was called State Violence and the Execution of Law, Biopolitical Cesure of uh, Torture, uh, Drone Kills. Um, and basically it was preoccupied with looking at the way in which the US state in particular had deployed a regime of torture and extrajudicial killings through drones um, in various um, countries in South Asia and uh, the Arab states. And I wanted to account, how is it possible that um, these states can override international law, can override regimes of human rights and torture to the point of death of, often uh, in places like Bagram and um, uh, Guantanamo or kill uh, via semi-automated drones in uh, various countries like Yemen, Somalia, Afghanistan, Pakistan. Uh, and what I did note when I was doing that book was that, you know, what was being deployed was you know, what Foucault would call the biopolitical caesura, and that is this definitive cut that actually demarcates who's human and at the polar opposite, who's animal. And immediately you're designated as non-human within that framework you're, uh, you can be tortured with impunity and you can be killed without any accountability. So really that's what that book was about. As I was approaching the end of it, I, I thought this is a really odd book because I'm drawing on this human-animal divide and I can't see animals anywhere in this book. 
And so I began to sort of think that through in the, the conclusion, the afterward, where I began to say, you know, I began to reach out to this notion that we need to enlarge our sense of, um, of ethical considerability and the way in which more than human life is captured within our legal frameworks, our ethical frameworks. And so I left finishing that book really unsettled and I thought, I've got to rewrite the whole book. <laughs> I'm really unsatisfied with it. So I began to sit down and, and, and try to think through how I could do that. And as I mentioned, um, because I live in a settler colonial state called Australia, I was familiar with Indigenous worldviews and their profound appreciation of uh, the more than human universe, from water to trees, to rocks, to mountains, um, to animals, et cetera. And the way they are encompassed in really complex societal relations. And what is not present is this notion that there is the human and they are exceptional. And then there is all this other life that can be used, abused, killed, and escapes uh, judicial frameworks as they do in the um, European context, in the Eurocentric context, except when they're categorized largely as property. So I began to read up on um, indigenous knowledges, not that I've mastered them by any um, stretch, but I began to sort of try and unlearn my own Euro uh, anthropocentrism. Simultaneously, as I was writing the book, it was um, the book was published in 2013. In 2014, uh, the Israeli settler state launched uh, Operation Protective Edge um, in July 2014. And what unfolded, I found quite overwhelming. I was following um, the daily accounts that were coming in from journalists, but also the testimonies from people specifically in Gaza where the brunt of the assault was waged. And the testimonies and the journalists' reports were saying not only were humans killed, I mean, that's sufficient unto itself, but the testimonies were pouring in all this uh, reportage of um, tanks crushing chicken coops, smashing aviaries, smashing uh, apiaries, uh, shooting randomly cows, donkeys, um, sheep, um, machine gunning orchards, uh, ploughing down the orchards with armoured tanks and leaving just destruction and soil. And I thought, well, look, I understand the biopolitics of the Israeli state's settler occupation of, um, of, of Palestine, but biopolitics by itself seems to fail in addressing all of this other militarized violence and destruction. So um, I sort of sat back and I went back to Foucault and I found an opening there where he was talking about the interlinking of race and you know the, the way in which once you're categorized uh, as a particular inferior race, you can be executed with impunity. You know, he developed that whole notion of being left to die or being killed, which you know, Kilim and Bembe then developed it to necropolitics. And I thought. What happens if we refract this homogenized notion of biopolitics and begin to name and identify the different modalities of biopolitics that aren't extant at the moment, but which actually unfold in real life in terms of the destruction that I was uh, naming. So I, I, 
I um, began to develop a series of neologisms and um, as a point of levity at this, at this uh, moment, uh, when we had our sort of talk, Dolly, um, about you know, where I was from and what my past is, I'm a diasporic subject, so I wasn't born into the English language. And um, I've always had a very unsettled um, relationship to, to the English language. I love, I love the language, but I also feel I can never inhabit it as, as a native in inverted commas. And that's often been made very explicit to me by um, uh, you know, review, peer reviews I've received where they often say that I write in a wayward way. And so I've really taken that waywardness on board and I found it quite liberating because I thought, right, I'm not a native speaker as such. I don't inhabit the language in that, you know, in absolute embodied way. So I have a freedom really to stretch it and even to abuse it and to take it into places where it, you know, it doesn't necessarily want to go. And so that freedom was crucial for me in liberating me from what I would call that Euro-anthropocentric framework and saying, if the words don't exist, let's invent them. So I began to invent the notion of phytopolitics, which is a modality of biopolitics that targets trees in a whole range of ways, whether it becomes a weaponized form of tree planting that the Israeli state executes on occupied Palestinian land by erasing olive trees and turning those lands into forest plantations, nature reserves, whether it's aquapolitics, where um, uh, the Israeli state contaminates the water and uh, creates water scarcity in a place like Palestine so that they are reduced really to uh, water subsistence. And I'm talking about the animals, the trees, as you know, that I document in there and and human beings. So that's what aquapolitics began to focus on. Pedon politics looked at the... um, really biopolitical modality of destroying the soil and its biota, uh, destroying its fertility, destroying the sort of nourishing properties that soil gives to all forms of life. And, um, you know, the Israeli state does that in two ways. It actually directly poisons the soil along the Gaza Strip by um, placing really toxic herbicides. And they say they do that in order to create optimum uh, visibility for surveillance purposes. But, of course, that soil leaches into the water table and remains like a toxic residue there. And they also do it because of the amount of destruction, um, uh, you know, through those military, recursive military campaigns. So you have spent ordnance leaching radioactive material, white phosphorus, or cobalt, a whole range of toxic materials. Um, and then the air, aeropolitics, where the bombardments create their own form of immediate toxicity, but also destroy life in uh, lingering ways because there's the dust, there's the asbestos, the concrete particulates that interpenetrate all forms of life and and create, you know, what I call um, pathophysiologies, uh, where people become sick merely because they're breathing. They become sick merely because they've drunk a... um, a glass of contaminated water. So what I began to do then is to say, there's a lethal assemblage here and biopolitics needs to be opened up to address this lethal assemblage in all of its differential modalities. And let's have these names then as a way of enabling us to name and identify these differential modalities that I I see as interlocking. 
um, they operate in tandem. Often if they, and, and sometimes they operate in contradictory ways too. So for example, you know, as I say in the book, when Israel um, destroys thousands of olive trees, uh, that's an act of phytocide, we would say. It's an act of destruction of vegetal life. And um, Palestinians reply in turn, uh, trying to erase or contradict that gesture of violence by immediately going surreptitiously at night and planting um, olive trees as, as a gesture of defiance. Um, and that sort of recursive violence that, that I'm talking about is not something that uh, we can put to the past, as uh, all of you would have inescapably have seen. This week saw, or the last two weeks saw yet another onslaught on Gaza by the Israeli state uh, with the bombardment of residential buildings, um, schools, infrastructure, power plants, um, with the result that Gaza has been uh, disastrously incapacitated once again. And, and just today, to speak to what I'm talking about in terms of aquapolitics, I follow um, a Gazan whose name is Omar Graib. He posts daily on his situation in, in Gaza. And I just want to read you this one line. He says, Gaza shoreline, the only getaway for those living in the biggest open-air prison is said to be more polluted this summer due to lack of electricity and severe damage of infrastructure, causing more wastewater to be pumped into it. Waterborne diseases flourish. Now, that's interesting for me, and it's got ramifications in, in, a, in, you know, in a globalised way for me, because what I also try to address there is we need to come to terms that whenever as humans, we're obliterating the other, whether that be other humans categorised as such, or more than human life, sheep, donkeys, trees. We're actually connected to those things in binding ways which we disavow so that we can perpetrate those act of, acts of violence. So when Omar Grabe is talking about the disastrous uh, flow of untreated sewage and toxins in the Mediterranean, uh, to draw on a really memorable line by Savindrini Pereira, that the Israeli state cannot draw a line in the sea to stop that. There's a line of um, autoimmunity which immediately co-implicates the health and safety of the aggressor state, for example. So, you know, what I'm basically trying to address here are the ecological binding relationality of uh, the, the, the connectors within these fraught, violent contexts. In the next chapter, I, moved on, I move on to look at the really intimate forms of life relationality that um, the detainees of Guantanamo have with um, lizards, with banana rats, with um, uh, birds, ravens, pigeons, and how crucial those relationships have been to sustaining and keeping them alive within that institution of uh, incarceration and maximum isolation and torture. And I, I guess what I wanted to do there was to look at the most, in a sense, disenfranchised of human states because they have been categorized as outside the purview, as I argue in the book, of the human rights framework. They, they really have been reduced to biological matter. As I say in the book, they're referred to as the pumpkin patch because of their orange suits. 
or alternatively, they were encaged in wire mesh cages and the um, guards referred to them as being in a zoo effectively. But within this absolutely disenfranchised state, what I came across were these testimonies by the detainees that so poignantly, powerfully articulated that what gave them hope, and you know, one detainee who's actually manacled and hanging from a wall says, a fly entered the cell. And in that moment, I experienced the joy of freedom. Uh, that so resonated for me because the, and he wanted the fly to escape, to add to the power of that testimony. So there's a sense of wanting it to escape the prison of indefinite detention. So when I looked at those testimonies, I really began to look at the way in which even in the most isolated, maximum isolation um, uh, captivity situations, humans seek the more than human and they instantiate binding relations that are actually about learning from them. They learn from the ants, they learn about sociability. And one detainee learns about how to be hospitable um, because a, a lizard enters there and they established this relationship. And he said that the, desert, the, the lizard taught me to be human effectively. Um, and what, what I do there too is um, I had looked at um, animal uh, at human torture in, in the prior book that I mentioned, but then I also looked at the way in this book that human tortures of practice, um, uh, practices of human torture that were licensed by the to so-called torture memos under the um, Bush regime uh, and its unleashing of the war on, on terror. They were actually predicated on a whole series of animal experiments um, where, for example, as I talk about in the book, the experimentation on captive dogs being exposed to electric shock in cages uh, brought into focus how you could turn someone into a mode of learned helplessness. And then that was transposed to Guantanamo and to Bagram, etc., to transnational torture sites. So at that point, I also asked, under the, um, the, 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 the Geneva torture, uh, torture Convention and the US Anti-Torture Statute, we've got the categories of cruel, degrading and inhuman practices as constituting torture. And I thought, well, actually what's absent here is the way often these torture practices are actually enabled and learned and disseminated on the back of unaccounted violence towards an experimentation on animals. So again, with a sort of um, liberal nod to my outsider status to the English language, I said, the word doesn't exist, let's invent it. So I thought in animal torture needs to be named. The enormity of the violence that we perpetrate not just in experimental labs, but in the larger scale of industrial farming, et cetera. Extinction, which is your domain, uh, Dolly. Um, let's have that word to ethically begin to account for what defies Euro-anthropocentric categorizations of what violence, cruelty, and degradation, degradation are. Uh, in the last part of the book, I basically turn again to the um, drone killing fields, but this time I look at the way in which 
and I didn't do it in the first book, I look at the way in which the drone um, missiles don't only, again, in inverted commas, execute humans. They execute sheep, cows, donkeys. Uh, they destroy vineyards. They destroy fields. They destroy vegetal life. They destroy mineral life. They destroy aquifers. And the violent shredding of human and more human than life is often so extreme that um, human survivors have to bury their dead in, um, in, in sort of collective ways of what I call consanguinity, where the, the blood of the other cannot be extricated, the flesh of the other cannot be extricated from the remains of the human dead. And I thought there's a relationality there then that defies all our strict, least categorizations of what constitutes a life that's ethically considerable, a life that's got ethical and jural standing, legal standing. And I won't go into it now, but you know, I go into the whole framework of international law, which has got a very Eurocentric um, imperial bedrock in terms of its foundations. And even to this day, it can only account for any form of more hum than human life under the category of human property. That's the a major you know, way that it can be indexed as having any dual standing. I conclude the book, I think, with a glimmer of hope in the midst of all of this destruction and killing. And I basically find the hope in the figure of two Palestinians, a man whose house has just been bombed. As he leaves the house to flee to a refugee camp, he finds a bird that's been injured, he picks up the bird, cradles the bird in its hand and takes it on the bus to the refugee camp because he sees it as a life worthy of consideration, worthy of rescue, but also a life that is a refugee. Um, it's not just a strictly human category. And so he's fleeing war and destruction. The other figure of hope for me it's a Palestinian woman in the midst of Operations Protective Edge 2014. The bombs are dropping. There's massive water scarcity. There's scarcity in Gaza anyway, but there's massive water scarcity because the powerhouse has been bombed. And so all of the power the water pumps have failed. So they're really on rations in terms of what they can collect in terms of their um, tank water. But every day, her, um, her, her son-in-law says she waters the plants. She disperses the limited supply of uh, family water to keep those plants alive. Why are they significant to me? As I say, they're significant to me precisely because they defy what I call the, the anthropocentric hegemon, which has created the anthropocentric crisis, right? They are small, localised, body acts which for me form silent, often invisible collectivities or often really visible and vocal collectivities like your own Scandinavian uh, Greta Thunberg, who began a silent vigil but has collected a critical mass. So they're gestures of hope because for me, any form of law in a sense has to come from the grassroots and these um, acts of ethical considerability that are all encompassing they're embracing of the more than human. They're embracing of the complex relational 
lines that connect us to life on this planet, they are what will see us through and what will create change. Thank, Thank you. you very much, Joseph, for this introduction to your book. Um, I think that there's some really strong um, lines in there that we need to take forward and to think about the ways in which um, violence is happening, both in these kind of war situations, but all around us um, in society and, and what that means um, within our scholarly practice in environmental humanities, as well as more broadly as you know, people on the planet. Um, I'm wondering about the concept here, because as I was listening to you talk of scorched earth mm. as a tactic of warfare that's talked about. How do you, you know, do you engage with that concept or, or how might we engage with that concept with this framework that you've put forward? Because as I as I think about scorched earth and uh, the policy of scorched earth, that this has a quite long history. Um, mm -hmm. And as a somebody who's worked in medieval history before, you know, I mean, armies in in the uh, Hundred Years War uh, were notorious for going around and, and trying to scorch the earth to to get rid of your, um, you know, um, enemies. So, um, how does that factor in here? Look, that, that's really important, actually. And look, I, I address that scorched earth policy by looking at the way in which the um, international laws of war and environmental protection actually can't address practices of scorched earth except through the prism of property the destruction of property. So there's no sense in international law and, in, and the environment that trees, water and soil should be protected unto themselves as having their own legal right to be. Um, and so that's a massive failure. And as I say in the conclusion of the book, a number of um, uh, environmental lawyers have tried to make intervention uh, to the UN and call really for what they call the Fifth Geneva Convention, which will cover more than human life um, and, and stop that raised earth um, destruction. And that raised earth, that, um, uh, that, sort of, that sort of totality of destruction, you know, it's interesting you talk about the medieval period because if, 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 if you've read the book and you go to chapter two, it's something that's uh, unfolding even as we speak in Operation Protective Edge. I mean, what I found startling when I started to read the Israeli defence testimonies collected um, by a human rights organisation in Israel uh, in, in, in a collection of testimonies called This Is How We, we Fought, they, the, the, the soldiers actually confessed to saying that they had no rules of engagement. So everything was up to kill. And in fact, they were, they were often told, raise everything from chicken coops to orchards to aquifers, whatever's in your way. So we haven't addressed this totality of destruction. We haven't addressed it legally. We haven't addressed it ethically. So it's, it's, it's a crucial point. And just to add to the weight of that, I think what escapes purview in terms of looking, you know, when I was looking at this sort of anthropocentric literature is the way military organisations, such as um, particularly the US, 
are really the largest consumers and polluters that we have on Earth. 30% is one estimate of the carbon releases are coming from the US military, which is the biggest on Earth. So there are clear ties here between things that seem so disparate and disconnected, war and campaigns of war on the ground, but then the larger infrastructure of a geopolitical ecology that is actually destroying the earth silently and that evades any form of law under the ruse of um, national sovereignty, for example. I'm wondering about, so the, the examples in the Gaza situation are um, livestock and uh, orchards. So, so those are in, if you will, human production, right? So what one could turn the legal argument and say, okay, well, they are a property. Um, but what about wild animals and, and forests that are not you know, planted, they're not plantations. So do you deal with that kind of interaction? Do you see um, this kind of systematic war violence being afflicted also in the, the more wild realms? Yeah. I, I do. In, in, in the second chapter, I talk about the way in which the uh, ongoing what, what Israel has done is um, situate a lot of its most toxic polluting factories in the West Bank because they are outside of um, legal regulation effectively from the Israeli state that presents itself in acts of greenwashing as really pro progressive ecologically. And a lot of these um, Palestinian e ecologists have marked the way in which there's uh, ongoing polluting effects throughout the whole ecology of where these toxic industries like tanning industries, for example, they name and the wastewater that that produces is actually killing off a whole um, range of, of wildlife, um, you know, foxes and deers and, and birds, etc. So they're naming the way in which, say, settler colonial occupation is also, um, and, and its eco modalities of ecocide are, are, are tied to eliminating, uh, you know, so-called wildlife forms. Um, and, you know, one of the uh, Palestinian um, scholars and ecologists that I follow, Mazim Kumse, he basically um, has drawn attention to the way in which, for example, the Jewish National Fund's reforestation of um, Palestinian villages and the destruction of um, Mediterranean flora and fauna created um, ecological death zones through pine forest plantations. And so really rare Mediterranean plants, uh, rare uh, fauna uh, have been made extinct or at risk of extinction. So those ties are definitely there. So Ursula uh, Munster said, thank you, Joseph, for your important work in the chat. Um, and she was wondering if the concept of multi-species justice that's recently entered into environmental humanities and uh, debates resonates with you in your work. Um, and she'd like to be interested, she'd be interested to hear more about the indigenous theories and epistemologies and how you integrated them into your book. Is it just, if you will, the inspiration for the thinking or do you 
carry those those theories and epistemologies in particular ways in your work? Sure. Uh, two two very good questions. So um, to start with the second first, um, they're integrated throughout the book, and in a sense, they enabled me to challenge the sort of um, Euro anthropocentric categorizations that I that I talked about. So, for example, they challenge such a range of uh, Euro-anthropocentric practices precisely because they flip on the head the very notion that humans are exceptional because they have language, because they have society, because they have emotion, because they're sentient, whatever you like. They actually say, because the West says, well, yes, uh, the, you know, the latest ethology is an animal might have this level of intelligence or it might even show some emotion or it has cultural transmission, but there are always exceptions to the rule. What indigenous um, societies, and you know, I'm homogenizing here because we don't have time to go into the particularities, they say, well, actually, animal, tree, etc., more than human, are societies. They have their own language, they have their own law, they have their own treaties and intertreaties uh, between them. They are sentient, they have speech, etc. We speak with them, etc. And I document that throughout the book. Now that's crucial because, in a sense, that undermines the possibility for the biopolitical bio caesura to be enacted. Because immediately you stop the exceptionalism of the human. And because what I looked at the torture practices was you needed to take away from the human subject that was going to be killed or tortured the notion that they were really sentient, civilized subjects. They were beyond that. Uh, and so they'd go into, you know, what I call it a, a vertical descent into imminent biologism. They're just carcasses or lumps of flesh because they don't have language, because they don't have civilization, they don't have law, they're outside law, they're terrorists, whatever. So that was very enabling in those ways. Sorry, what was the first question? Because I moved on. Um, that was about the multi-species justice. Where does the idea oh, yeah. of justice yeah. fall into this? Yeah. Look, I, I think that that's an important intervention. It, it's not a category I use. To, to, to be honest, I find the category of species a difficult one to live with, which is why I went for the more than human, precisely because it's got that, if you like, that fraught history of scientific biologism, objectification, categorization. Um, they're, they're just personal sentiments about, you know, the violence that attends that term. And I, and I show that the way in which, you know, I, I look at the checkpoints in Gaza and I say, in a sense, what we're seeing there is the speciation of the Palestinian as animal. And so for me, it's got like a Darwinian resonance that I just don't take up, even as I appreciate the fact that they're trying to do justice to um, the diversity of life that is on earth. Um, I'm just not comfortable with the term multi-species. Yes, um, I completely feel you there. I, I, dealing with extinction is really difficult, right? Um, with the word species and how do you um, handle that? Because we well, are- Sorry, Dolly, yeah. You, you would have seen, I mean, you know, it, it's not only got that sort of uh, scientific, you know, biological history, it's also got a really loaded racist history. Uh, and a Nazi history specifically, you know, where, 
you were reduced to a species effectively, and then you could be executed in the camps and tortured. So there's a racist, you know, what I call a racio speciesist uh, nexus there. And, you know, I coined that term to show that the way in which racism never operates as a singularity, it's always underpinned by this unstated sense of speciesism, right? Absolutely. So um, Christine Erickson was, uh, said, thank you for sharing these uh, emotive and politically powerful narratives. She'd be interested in hearing about your methods of data collection. So what kind of data did you use? Where did you find it um, for doing this powerful work? Um, well, uh, I basically, it was quite a broad range of data that I collected. Um, one was collecting testimonies that have been published and um, that cover people speaking their, their, their experience of these forms of violence. So um, e ecological groups, uh, human rights groups, social justice activists have collected a whole range of testimonies. And it was important for me throughout the book to have those voices speak their histories and embodied experiences and uh, I profusely draw on them. Um, and, and often they're, they're reports that seem really um, forensic and um, unemotive, like the post-mortem report on um, uh, Adnan Latif, the, the, the young um, man who eventually dies in Guantanamo uh, that I talk about in, in chapter three. And really that was a really, detached, neutral, forensic, scientific report. But I found the most valuable parts in the footnotes where they were saying these detainees are consorting illegitimately with animals. And so they would go on to explain what these animals were doing with the, uh, with, with, with the detainees. Um, newspaper reports, uh, social media, like I mentioned, Omer Gray, particularly during the unfolding of um, Operation Protective Edge. And as you saw just a couple of weeks ago, um, the Israeli state will often impose blackout, media blackouts, and as we saw a couple of weeks ago, they actually destroyed the offices of Al, Al Jazeera. They bombed the whole uh, comp uh, um, co office complex of, of these news organisations. But that, fortunately, um, the people on the ground, the Gazans on the ground, continued to speak their, their truth and testimonies through um, social media. So it really is an, it's an assemblage of government reports, testimonies, um, social media accounts. Um, and, you know, with, 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 the, with the notion that you're often, you have to really do your research carefully because there can be dubious sources in the midst of all of that. So you've got to be quite rigorous. So Aria was uh, looking or wanting you to expand upon your definition of human, um, because of course you use words like human rights, um, and thinking about humans and, of course, the category of animal and how they're categorized there. Um, and here, um, the comment was thinking about Sylvia Winter's work that argues that human as a word means European man or is, is moving towards that. So do you think about that at all in the, the idea of human? Absolutely. Um, look, I, I think people like Sylvia Winter, but as you know, I, I, um, um, 
I invoke Hortense Spillers. I mean, she's foundational. And she was foundational in my prior book where she draws up that found, you know, fundamental distinction between what she calls the vestibularity and the culture. And she says, for African-Americans, for black people, they've been relegated to the vestibularity of the US state. And that is the space of slavery, of lynching, of executions, of incarceration, and of be really being outside the law, outside culture, and outside of the category of the human. And she says the polar opposite of that is the culture, in inverted commas. That's the habitus of the human, the European, with all the civilizational attributes that they bring. So for me, the human is a really you know, fraught word because, again, this freighted history. I guess, look, you know, that's such an interesting question because as I was writing the book, I kept thinking to myself, I'm you know, from a European position which I own and, and I'm trying constantly to unlearn, I, feel, I felt time and again that I was reaching the limits of, of language, the limits of intelligibility. What words can I use to break this? Do, do you know what I mean? Because we're, we're caught in that epistemic frame. So, I, you know, human troubles me and that's why I, I staged that trenchant critique of human rights because it's about racialized group privileged membership. You, know, you only need to look at our colonial imperial histories to see that played out. I'd like to ask a question that addresses more the, the modern human in this, uh, and then particularly the question of agency and modern human agency, because that's what I see as one of the, I mean, one of the really important parts of, of modern human uh, perspectives. To, to give agency to more than the human actors. Uh, and I mean, at least in the part that we heard about your book, uh, you have very strong human agency uh, that is in a way inflicted on the modern human. Uh, could you perhaps for us talk a little bit more about the, the modern human agency? Is there any, uh, is there any, I mean, impact uh, of that in, in the story that you're looking at? Uh, there is. So, I mean, when I look at the way in which the ecological collapse of the sanitary infrastructure of Gaza uh, has created all sorts of pathogens, I actually look at the, you know, Derridean model of autoimmunity as a way of addressing um, more than human agency that escapes the aggressive victim binary and that also escapes and attenuates, if you like, the lines of uh, agency that are direct because you have, if you like, Israeli defence forces come in, they are the direct agents, they cause massive destruction, they move out, the agents are no longer there. But we have proxy agents through the toxic chemicals and the pollutants and they become, if you like, their own virulent agents as such, and they cross boundary lines. And, and that's why I call about, you know, I talk about a biopolitics of transboundary autoimmunity, because the Iron Dome and the wall isn't going to stop them. Uh, those pathogens will travel, and they have traveled. And so in that section, I look at the way there's panic in the Israeli state, because these um, pathogens are now in Israel, they're in Israeli hospitals brought in 
if you like, um, through these uh, through bodies, the, the body of the other, and uh, they're actually causing panic and um, a sense of uh, we cannot control this now. Uh, how are we going to stop this? So I think that's a really powerful instantiation of more than human agency that defies not only human agency, but the sorts of boundary markers that humans put up, like the Iron Dome and the wall, to create these violent divisions. I think there was also an, an interesting uh, point when, you, when you're talking about, you talked about at the end these um, relationships on one of the chapters of, with the Guantanamo uh, prisoners, you know, the relationship with the more than human, but those more than humans have come into their space, right? They, they've actually, you know, the bird coming into the cell or the lizard coming into the place. So, so they weren't put there by the, the humans in charge. They have chosen to um, make their homes in those places because they're good for them, right? Um, so I was wondering about that relationship um that there seems to be this tension then between this um if you will uh, destruction and and visceral hate potentially for nature that's operating um with some of this these violent activities with a a, a biophilia a, a love yeah. of nature um that you yeah. end with and so what well, do you thank you for that I was smiling because when I was reading those uh, footnotes in that post-mortem report, um, it gave me so much pleasure to see the way the birds and the banana rats and the lizards would come on their own turns. They would, if you like, um, override the infractions of the cage. They manoeuvred their way in through multi-layers of walls, cages, etc. They would fly in, do what they wanted, have a relationship, rest on someone's shoulder, be fed, and then take, you know, go off. And the biophilia is actually quite intense um, in, in um, the side of Guantanamo. Um, not only that detainee who, who's hanging off the wall in manacles, uh, wishing the fly to escape so it doesn't have to endure his prison cell, but um, uh, uh, one of the detainees actually talks about... Um, saving uh, all of the detainees that I looked at feeding the ants, that they save a grain uh, from a, a crust of bread. They save um, tuna from their tuna fish sandwich to feed the animals. Um, so there's an intense biophilia there. And more than that, when the guards come to the door, um, one of the uh, detainees has established a system of communication with the ants because they'll be exterminated as pests. They're not allowed to feed any of the animals, including ants. And he's established quite a sophisticated relationship, you know, what I call a zoosemiotics zoo relationship, where they're communicating through saliva, food bits, bits of metal, etc. He will blow breath in their direction and they scatter because he knows that they'll be exterminated if the guards ca ca catch them. So um, in this most isolated and imprisoning form of life, you have this extraordinary life surge of biophilia being enacted. Yes, and, and Ursula, right? amazing stories. And that's in fact, I mean, that it, it is. It's amazing to see how even in the most dire times, you 
that people still have this relationship to the to the non-human right and we see that in all kinds of war stories i mean with your story of picking up the the bird that's injured but people um in a disaster situation take their pets right that's one of the things you you take with you um as as like an automatic impulse that you wouldn't leave this um here to die and in fact it becomes a really big issue when people do. So I know that Hilda Keen's book on the um, great cat and dog massacre um, that happens with mm. World War under World War II, mm. you know, deals with that issue. So how do people respond when they decide that the best option is actually to kill the thing um, and not to take it with you? Um, so I was wondering if there is any kind of tensions about that of life versus death for the non-human and how people might deal with that? Um, tensions in, in that um, it's, it's a, what a question of priorities. Who, who, who do you let live? Is, is that your question? Yeah, or thinking about is, is there some, I don't know, ethical position um, that any of the, the stories that you look at have in terms of well that bird that's injured would it mm. have been best to wring its neck right right at, at the time right. like like do you make that that ethical choice um in these violent situations so i guess when when is violence um uh acceptable to to the as, as a response, or is it ever? Perhaps it's not, um, but so that's the question for you. Look, um, I, I think that's not a question that I've contemplated um, precisely because of my own biophilia. Um, so um, I, I'm not sure that would be a question that I would leave for others to make in the contingency of those dreadful, distressing situations where you would be compelled. I could understand just like I can understand, say, in Toni Morrison's um, extraordinary book, that a mother would kill her children rather than have them subjugated to the enormity of enslavement, sexual violence of the plantation. So they are really weighted questions that I don't think I can generalise and they have to be made within the moral gravitas of the moment. Yes. And uh, Helene, really kind of in, in follow up to this discussion of, of caring for the more than human in these situations, um, mm -hmm. said that she follows a Twitter account, uh, the Aleppo Catman, which is a cat sanctuary um, in Aleppo. And um, that being one of the voices from Syria on social media um, that keeps alive the hope that you're talking about. So um, this hopeful relation in the midst of um, yeah. this violence. Um, so in your view, what's the impact of those kind of initiatives in war contexts? So do the people who are actually affected by the violence, can it be for them or is it only for us, the international outsiders that can feel some sense of hope? Oh, no, look, I think it's, it's for them in the first instance. And um, I, I draw your attention to the extraordinary love 
of the Palestinians to their olive trees and the sense of absolute mourning and devastation when those olive trees are destroyed to the point, as I talk about in the book, that they stage ceremonies of mourning, letting banners down from the balcony, grieving for their trees, depositing the violated trunks of the olive trees on the steps of the municipal authorities that ordered the destruction of that. They're not doing that for the international community. That's rarely ever reported, that sort of destruction. They're doing it for the love of their trees. And I say love because, you know, a few of the olive um, um, grove um, owner, farmers speak about the olive trees having a soul for them. They say, I nourish them with my blood and my sweat. I am beholden to them. And um, there's a sense that they are, in a sense, um, privileged to be caring and nourishing this tree. They are doing that without the international spotlight on there. There's the moment where someone captures this narrative and there are all the other moments where these narratives are not, have not been captured. There's a moment um, in the uh, close of the book where um, um, Kasim Aid, the um, Syrian um, uh, activist, social justice activist and reporter, and I think I saw Rifai Tamas here, who I know, um, who escaped uh, the war in Syria. Um, and, and no doubt this would resonate for you, uh, Rifai. Um, he talks about the destruction of the lemon trees and the olive trees as acts of genocide by the uh, Assad regime. And he talks about the life enhancing qualities that these trees have given and the West is not recording the destruction of um, his lemon and olive trees. He's actually in a state of um, starvation because he's gone on a starvation hunger strike. And yet he's still thinking about the fate of his beloved olive and lemon trees, even as the rest of the world is not paying any heed or attention either to the plight of um, Syrians in this war or to the lemon trees and the, and the olive trees of Syria. All right, so our time is coming to an end now, so uh, we should wrap up. I'd just like to thank then uh, Joseph Pugliese for uh, presenting his book um, and also all you in the audience for, for coming. So thank you to everyone. Uh, thank you very I... much, Dinani, and thank you very much, Dolly Jorgensen, for your warm hosting of this um, event. Um, I, I feel very honoured to have contributed to the discussion. <laughs>